Take a Bible, turn to 1 John chapter 2. We are really going to dig our teeth down into 1 John this morning. If you don't have a Bible or one that is easily readable, we have a bunch out in the lobby. And on your way out, feel free to grab one of those, take that. You don't have to borrow it. That's completely yours. It's so important to us that you would have access to God's Word, especially when we're reading such a rich letter in 1 John if this is your first time with us, we've been walking our way through this letter. First uh, John is written by John, a disciple and then apostle of Jesus. Once Jesus was resurrected and then ascended into heaven, John became one of the primary pastors in the Jerusalem church. And he spent about 40 years there. Uh, Rome and Israel started to really get into it. Uh, Jerusalem was threatened. And so John, along with many other people, uh, left and fled Jerusalem. He ends up in Ephesus, a place where Paul was really the primary pastor early on. But then John kind of assumes the responsibility. And his job is to not only look out for one church, the church in Ephesus, but of all the churches in that region. And he he was an old man by this time, and so he has a deep care for all of these churches. And so that's why in 1 John, he consistently refers to them as his little children, as somebody older in the faith, which is such a sacred and holy thing, um, looking out for his children in the faith. Um, and what he said so far, just to recap, is God is light. In him there is no darkness. We have fellowship with God. Meaning we have a relationship with God. And more than just a relationship, we have active conversation. We have active action with God. Therefore, because God is light and we have fellowship with him, we should walk in the light. And what John has told us over and over again in just the few first verses is that if we claim and believe that God is light and that we claim and believe that we have fellowship with him, but we are not walking in the light, then we are liars, actually. There's something uh, false about us and about our faith. And what we're going to see today is that um, we are to walk in the light as Jesus is the light and walks in the light. And this is how it says it in verse 6. Whoever says he abides in him, that's Jesus, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So we should follow in the steps of Jesus. And what he's going to transition to is that we follow in the steps of Jesus into loving others well. Now, when we think about love, or at least when I think about love, I, I usually think about loving those closest to me. I think about loving Amanda, my wife. I think about loving my children. You probably do as well, friends, family. We usually think about those who we love very easily. Um, I remember when Amanda was pregnant with Jackson. He's our oldest and he's eight. Um, I didn't really get in touch with him and being a dad while he was in utero. You know, there are some of these dads that they, you know, read a bedtime story to the belly every night, you know, so that the baby can hear the voice. And if you did that, like, bless you, I think you're kind of weird, but bless you for that. I really wasn't like that. You know, um, one of our pastors is pregnant and, and she was telling us that her husband, uh, he doesn't really even like to touch the belly to feel the baby kick. And uh, I was started giving a real hard time. Like what kind of heartless person would do that? Amanda speaks up and goes, you didn't do that either. And so I, I really didn't know what it was like to be a dad. And I really wasn't in touch with that uh, while Jackson was still in there. Um, but then it came time for him to be born. And we were at the hospital and listen, man, I'm going to give you a little, little helpful 
hint today. In the labor and delivery room, you have two jobs. Can you say that with me? Two jobs. That's it. Job number one, stay awake. I know that because I fell asleep. That's a huge mistake. It doesn't matter if it's the middle of the night. It doesn't matter if the labor is taking forever. You are not allowed to fall asleep because I did and I have regretted it every day since then. Stay awake. Your number one job. No, job number two, really your only responsibility in there is to count. That's it. It's just to count when it's go time. And so as I was counting with Amanda, I mean, Jackson is uh, minutes or seconds literally from being born. I got to one particular number and I don't really remember which number it was, but it was like that love of a father just landed on me and my voice started to crack as I was counting down. And, and we have a little disagreement in our marriage about how many tears were shed during that counting process. I say zero. I am right. Obviously. But it was just like, I, I got it. Now, I, I have this love for this person. And, and when we think about love, we usually think of that kind of love. Love that comes very natural to us. Love that comes very easily to us. We like to love. We love to love people who are easy to love. But John is going to expand our vision of, of love and who we are supposed to love. So, 1 John chapter 2, verse 7. Beloved... I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word you have heard. And so what he's saying is, I'm going to tell you something that you already know. And they already know it. And this is why John says it's an old commandment, because they were given this commandment when they became followers of Jesus. It's something that they've known from the beginning. And John received it straight from Jesus. Jesus said to him and to the other disciples in John chapter 13, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So Jesus says this is a new commandment, but even really it wasn't totally new. The disciples already knew Leviticus chapter 19, uh, which says, love your neighbor as yourself. So as long as there had been a people of God, even way back in the beginning of the Bible, the Israelites were commanded to love one another. And yet Jesus calls this new. He, he actually quotes Leviticus chapter 19 um, in Matthew chapter 22, when he says, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all of your mind and what? Love your neighbor as yourself. So he's calling it new, even though it's old. And that's what John is saying. Look at verse eight. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you. So the command to love one another was old. It had been around since Leviticus chapter 19. But Jesus says it's new. And John saying, is saying it's new in Christ. And if you read the Gospels, you can clearly see that even though Jesus is fulfilling a very old command, love your neighbor as yourself, he's doing it in a very new way. In fact, it's so new and it's so radical that the people that he interacts with, they, they really don't know how to handle it. His love in the Gospels is so unusual that it confuses people. He applies it in ways that it had never been applied. John says it's new in Christ. It's an old command. But it's new in Christ. And he also says, and in you. So like Jesus, we are to take this old command and invest it in a new way. We're to take this old command and invest it in new places and in new people. 
I mean, think about what it would be like if you took an old command, love your neighbor as yourself, but you invested it in a fresh way at the place that you work. What would it look like to take this old command, love your neighbor as yourself, it's been around almost since the beginning of time, but you invested it in a new way in your marriage. What if you took this old command, love your neighbor as yourself, but you invested it in a very fresh and new way on the street that you lived in. So in Christ it's new because he applied it in a new way. He lived it in a new way and we follow in his steps. Therefore we are to apply it and to bring it and to invest it in a fresh new way. What would it look like to take this old command, love your neighbor as yourself, but to invest it in a new way or a new way for you in the poor or the marginalized. We see this with Jesus. You remember the story. He's having dinner at a Pharisee's house. The Pharisees were very uptight and religious people, very intent on keeping all of the rules. And, and yet, um, this sinful woman barges in that the Bible's not calling her a sinful woman. That's what everybody in her village knew her as the sinful women, uh, woman barges in, interrupts the dinner. She falls at Jesus's feet. She is weeping. And I'm not uh, talking about just a few little romantic tears coming down her face. I mean, weeping, loud crying, falls at Jesus's feet. She lets down her hair and she starts washing his feet, uh, cleaning his feet with her tears and her hair. Now that would be incredibly, um, uncomfortable in this environment right here. If that happened this morning, it would be very uncomfortable and almost inappropriate if that happened at your place of business tomorrow, even more so in this setting of the Pharisee's house. And yet what does Jesus do? He takes that very old command, love your neighbor as yourself, but he invests it in this woman and he just receives her offering. He doesn't push back. He, he doesn't pull back. He doesn't distance himself from her. He invests that old command in this new person in a new way. And we are to follow in his steps. And that's how it is old and new at the same time. And then look what he says again in verse eight, the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Now, every Jewish person that Jesus would have encountered would have understood that history was divided into two halves. There was the present age and there was the age to come. Say present age with me. Present age, say the age to come. Age to come. History is divided into two. Jesus even references those two ages in Matthew chapter 12. This was just a common understanding. But what Jesus taught and what the New Testament affirms is that that age to come, it actually came with Jesus. He believed that he was bringing the age to come with him. And so now we live in these overlapping ages. We're very much still in this present age. What Galatians chapter six or Galatians chapter one, verse four says uh, that we've been delivered from this present evil age, but we're also followers of Jesus. We're made new in Jesus. We have a new identity. We've been given a new home in the kingdom of God. And that's why Hebrews Uh, says in chapter six, verse five, that we have tasted the powers of the age to come. Because you also live in the kingdom of God, you get access to the kingdom of God here and now. So when we pray, we pray for miracles. Why? Because we don't just live in this present evil age. We're also living in the age to come because Jesus brought it with him. 
That's why when we talk uh, uh, to others about Christ, it's not merely an intellectual exercise. We ask for the Holy Spirit to give us power as we do that so that their minds and eyes can be opened and things can be clearly seen. And that's possible for us. Why? Because we're not just living in this present evil age, but we're also living in the age to come because we're following in the steps of Jesus. And that's what John is saying when he says the darkness is passing away. He's saying that old age, the present age, it's passing away and the true light is already shining. I mean, the age to come, the kingdom of Jesus is already here. And he says this in verse nine, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. So he's saying the same thing that he's been saying in first John, but a little bit more specific. He's been saying, if God is light, we have fellowship with God, therefore we should walk in the light. And so he's saying the same thing. If we are in the light, the darkness is passing away. We should live in the light, meaning we should not hate our brother. Let's skip down to verse 11. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness. And he does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now notice it says that the person who hates is in the darkness and also walks in the darkness. Now being in the darkness may not be that scary to you. You know, your children may need a a nightlight or there was a day when you did, but probably you don't anymore. And if you do, we love you and totally respect you as a human being, but probably the days of needing a nightlight is over. So being in the dark and being still is not that scary, is it? Because you're just being still. But think about being in, in total darkness and then being asked to accomplish something, being asked to move around, to find something then you understand the strength of the statement. We're not only in the darkness, but we're trying to walk in the darkness. And it says that we can't because darkness has blinded our eyes. Now the darkness blinds us in two ways. First, it dulls our conscience and then it hardens our heart. See, many of us are carrying some secret sins today, some things that we would not be proud to admit. Now, there are certain sins that we don't mind confessing because we think that they're common to everybody, right? If you said, man, I've just really been struggling with gossip, you would know that you're probably not going to be judged that much because the person you're confessing it to is also struggling with that. If you said, man, I'm really, you know, just struggling with my pride right now, that's like almost not confessing anything at all because everybody struggles with that. And so we don't mind doing that. But there are some other things hidden deep in our hearts and in certain pockets of our lives that we would not confess even under duress. They're secret and they're secret for a reason. And I would guess that most of our secret sins, and I say are, most of our secret sins started as one-time only decisions. We came to a moral fork in the road. We knew that the way that we should go was right. We knew that the Bible was telling us to go right. The Holy Spirit inside of us was flaring up, telling us that going right is the right way. But the left looked so appealing. And what we said to ourselves is just one time. One time only. It's just a one-time drink. Just a one-time look. Just a one-time address. It's a one-time thing. And a one-time thing turned into a two-time thing, which turned into an every week thing, which turned into an everyday thing, which is just now a thing. There are no only, there are no 
one-time-only sins. Because the darkness is progressive. It dulls our conscience. It makes us to where we can't even understand what is right and what is left anymore. And then it hardens our heart where we wouldn't even want to go right at all. Darkness blinds us. But look at what he's talking about. He's talking about hate. Now, I know most of us are opting out of that because we are not hateful people. I mean, even the strongest definition of hate here that's used here is pursue with hatred. Now, probably that's not what we would consider our, you know, the sin that we're most guilty of is pursuing people with hatred. But listen, love and hate are active words. They are not dormant words. They are not idle words. They do not remain. They are active and there is a progressiveness to them. And so hate, even though you may not be actively trying to harm someone, even though you may not be actively trying to, to, to minimize somebody else's influence, even though you may not be trying to hurt them in some way, if there is hate in your heart, it is having an effect. And listen, let's just be honest and say that we hate people, we just don't call it hate. And it eases our conscience and our, our feelings and our conviction because, oh, it's just, I, I don't hate them, I, I don't love them. And we've created like this middle ground where it's okay to, to just have no feelings about somebody. But these words are very strong. Love and hate, they're active. And if you have hate in your heart, no matter what label you've given it to, uh, given it, it is having its effect. It's hidden in attitudes. It's hidden in silent prejudice. It's hidden in isolation. If there is a seed of hate in you and in me, even though you may not be actively applying that hate towards somebody, I promise you, it is having its effect. But look at the good news. Verse 10, but whoever loves his brother abides in the light. Now that word love um, is, a, is a Greek word that he's using very specifically. There are many different types of loves in the Greek language which the New Testament is written in. You're familiar with many of them. There's a love that a parent has for a child. There's a love that a husband and wife have for each other. There's a, a love that friends have and acquaintances have. And then there's a love that's used here called agape, which is what the Jewish people would use when they would speak in the Greek language. This is the word that they would use to describe how God loved them. And this is the word that's most often used for love in the scripture. Uh, here's the definition of this agape love This is a quotation. Agape is an intelligent, purposeful attitude of esteem and devotion. A selfless, purposeful, outgoing attitude that desires to do good to the one who is loved. Listen to this. Agape is an emotional, intelligent, and willful kind of love. And this is the love that Jesus taught about and showed us. I want to show it to you. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. Jesus speaking on what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. 
And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. So Jesus is acknowledging that there is a common kind of love that is shared among, among mankind. He, he references the, the tax collectors. These were the most hated people. If you could justify hating anybody in this world, it would be easy to, to hate the tax collectors. And Jesus says, but even they love with a certain kind of love. And he says, and you've heard it said, meaning a common accepted statement is love your neighbor. That's Leviticus chapter 19. But then they just added a part of their own. And Hate your enemy, which is the kind of love that our our culture would aim in. Everybody is pro-loving your neighbor. Everyone is pro-loving those who are easy to love. But we're also pro-hating our enemies. But Jesus is showing us that this is not the kind of love that God uses. This is not the kind of love that he was investing in this planet. And this is not the, the kind of love that he is passing down to us. See, there is a love that we have in common. Your husband, every husband should love their wives. But we are Christian husbands. Therefore, we should love our wives with a love that goes beyond common expectation. Everyone should love their children. But we are Christian parents. We are Jesus-following parents. So we should love our children with a love that goes beyond common expectation. Everyone should love their friends, but we are Christian friends. So we should love with a love that goes beyond common expectation. Even the world occasionally loves the poor, but we are Christians. So we should love the poor and the marginalized and the broken down and the dishonored with a love that goes beyond common expectation. And then he says back in 1 John, and in him, for the one who loves his brother, abiding in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Now stumble is a word that's used consistently in the Bible, and it's most often used to describe what would happen when the Israelites in the Old Testament would get caught up in idolatry. See, in the ancient world, there were lots of different gods and goddesses. Asherah in the Old Testament was the goddess of uh, fertility and sex. The, uh, the god Baal, the Canaanite god, he was the god of the sky. And when they needed something from the sky, when they needed rain for their crops, they would worship the god Baal, the Canaanite god. 
But of course, the Israelites, they had one command above all other commands that they were to follow. It's one of the very first ones in the Ten Commandments, right? You shall have no other gods before me. They were only to worship the one true God. But every once in a while, they'd look at their neighbors and they would think, well, their crops are being abundantly blessed or their families are growing at a rate that our families are not growing at. And so maybe we need their gods and we need their goddesses. And so every once in a while, every few generations, they would get caught up in this idolatry and and they would begin to build these statues. Some statues were very large and they'd put them in temples and everybody would go to worship. And other statues were very small and they would set them up in their homes and they would pray to these gods and goddesses in their homes. And the Bible will say most often through those prophets in the Old Testament that those idols would cause them to stumble. Now it's easy to see, it's easy to see that idolatry is still a real problem for us. We still worship sex and fertility. We still worship the things that we need, the power, the influence. We, sure, we still worship money. We just don't give it a name. We don't call it mammon. But idolatry is still a very real problem for all of us. Now, what on earth does idolatry and love have to do with one another? Well, at the heart of idolatry is selfishness. As you read the Old Testament, you read other ancient literature, you you understand that nobody was going to seek these gods and goddesses because of who they were. They went because of what these gods and goddesses represented. They needed protection in battle, so they went to that particular god. They needed uh, uh, for their crops to be blessed, and so they would go to that particular god. So there was selfishness and self-centeredness at the heart of idolatry. And listen, if there is idolatry in our hearts, if if selfishness and self-centeredness is in our hearts, whether there are little statues in our home or not, it's going to prevent us from loving people. It's going to prevent us from following this command. Because loving others and self-centeredness and selfishness do not go hand in hand. So if love can increase... That idolatry in our hearts will decrease. And when that selfishness decreases, then we will stumble less and less. But all of that, I could have told you in one sentence. I probably should have. I would be the best pastor in the world, come in and said, the Bible says, Jesus says, to love others. And we could have all amen. I mean, who's not going to get behind that? And then we could have left. I, I will say that I've not preached for very long. We're almost done. And I want credit for that. I want credit for that. We all amen this. We all acknowledge that we are supposed to love other people. The question is how? It's how, because we don't really control the way we feel about people, do we? It's sometimes you don't love a person and other times love comes freely, even when you're not expecting it. Now, I know not everybody is a dog person, and if you're not a dog person, then we love you and we bless you. We're going to pray for your soul because there's something very wrong about it. The Joneses, we are dog people because when Amanda and I have been married for a couple of years, we got a little golden retriever puppy, and he was perfect and white, and he had this big giant jug head, and we loved him. We didn't have children yet, and we thought we needed to practice, and so uh, we thought it would be less consequential if we'd made all of our mistakes on this dog. And, and, uh, and we've just loved him his whole life, and, and this summer he, he turned 10, and his health really started to decline, and so he passed away about a month ago. And, um, you know, again, if you're not a dog person, your heart is cold and twisted, uh, but... Uh, <laughs> 
Uh, I cried more on the day that he died, I think, than I've cried in my entire life. And, and I wasn't even ashamed about it. You know, sometimes you cry, you're embarrassed about it. And other times it's just like you just went for it. And, and, uh, and so it was totally heartbreaking. And, and what made it worse is, is what Amanda and I have told you about the kind of year and a half that we have had. We've had four failed uh, adoptions uh, and uh, just that was door was closed for us every year. And, and then our daughter, Annabeth, our youngest, she was starting kindergarten this year. And so we were supposed to have a little person in our house, a new little fresh little person in our house, and that didn't work out. And so, um, and then our, we didn't even have a dog to fill up the empty home when our kids went off to school. And uh, I love my wife and I knew uh, that that was not going to be a acceptable to, uh, to send our little baby to kindergarten with just an empty house. And so I called every golden retriever breeder in Texas. I spent two days on the phone. When are your puppies due? Do you have any puppies? How much do those cost? I'm not interested in those. Uh, do you have any, uh, you have any discount puppies? I mean, I probably called 30 different breeders in this area. I finally found a breeder. Uh, who had had a set of puppies. Uh, She had two left. Um, And so we got in the car and we drove a long way, longer than I um, would be proud to admit uh, that we drove. And uh, we brought this little, little golden retriever puppy home. Her her name is Sailor. And Sailor is a mess, um, but uh, she's real sweet. And I fully anticipated that this would be Amanda's dog. Beckham, our old dog, that was my dog. That was my dog, and he went everywhere with me, and we were buddies. Um, this is going to be Amanda's dog, and she was going to love him, love her, and, uh, but I wouldn't care about it. And, uh, but you can't control who you love. And so we love this little puppy an, an insane amount. And she has a theme song that we like to sing all the time to her, and we sing songs, and um, we're a mess because you can't control who you love, you know, except for you, you can't love a cat. I mean, everybody knows that. <laughs> Just teasing, just teasing. I mean, that's the truth, but I'm just teasing. Just kidding. I lost all the cat people. You're, you're blessed and highly favored. God made all the animals. But that's our problem, isn't it? Is, is love... It just flows out of us towards those that we love. And we can't explain why. We can't cause a formula. And then there are just other people in this world that there's no love for. And you, you know you're supposed to love them. And here's where we are today. We're at this place where we look inside of us and we don't have love for this specific person or we don't have love for this specific group of people. We don't have love for these strangers, but we got this command from Jesus who handed it to John, who put it in the word of God. And now we're unpacking it this morning. We got this command. It's not a suggestion. It's not a helpful hint. It's not a, your life will be better. It's a command, love other people. But we look in and there's like, there's no love to give. In fact, what we have to give is not love at all towards them. What do we do? Most of us have just been content with disobeying and skipping over these parts or trying to harden our heart anytime somebody brings it up. But I love Jesus. I love Jesus for a million reasons, but one of them is because he's very smart. And he just sneaks this little sentence in, in Matthew chapter five. Because he says, love your enemies, which I'm like, no, (laughs) you know, no, 
love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If you're like me today and there are some very specific people in this world that you're like, I know I'm supposed to love them, but I do not. I don't know why I don't, but I do not. But I know I'm supposed to. What do I do now? Let's take Jesus's advice and pray. Any great movement of love that will come out of you will start with a great movement of prayer. If we want to love this city well, which I think we do as a church, it will start with prayer. Prayer first, love follows. So a person that you're really having a hard time loving right now, they're at the bottom of your prayer list. In fact, they're on that prayer list that you just say like, yeah, one day I'll pray for them six months from now. You you start moving them up until you can feel your heart start to change toward them. You're like, well, if I start to pray for that person, I'm going Old Testament style on them. I'm praying for judgment. I'm praying for calamity. I'm praying for vindication. And listen, be honest. God sees our heart anyway. Might as well be honest. But after that, you pray for them what you are praying for yourself. A lot of times when we pray, go to pray for people that we don't love, we pray for the things that will fix them so that they will be easier to love. And instead, let's just pray for them what we're praying for ourselves. So if you're praying for a promotion, at the same time you pray for you, pray for them a promotion. If you're praying that your, your kids would succeed and excel in school, then at the same time, pray that their kids would exceed. If you're praying that your kid will be the best one on their team, pray that their kid will be the best one on their team. If you're praying that you will be blessed and highly favored, then pray that they will be blessed and highly favored. And eventually, not on the first day, not on the second day, maybe on the second month, Because your prayers have shifted, your heart will start to shift. And you will feel your heart soften towards them. And now you'll look inside of you and you'll see that there is some love to give. And you'll follow into the steps of Jesus right into loving other people well, even if they're not easy to love. Let's pray. take a second. Who do you love? Just ask yourself, who, who do you love? You don't have to start with the hardest case, but just right now in your heart, who do you love? Maybe you start with your friend, start with your siblings, start with your spouse, kids, coworkers. Who, who do you love? And pray for them. Whatever you want God to do for you, ask to do for them right now. who should you love? Pray for them. Whatever you're praying for yourself, you pray for them. In Jesus' name.